todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Nathan Carson is a musician, writer, music journalist, and DJ. He's the co-founder and drummer of the doom metal band Witch Mountain and is the author of a rockin' cosmic horror novel called Star Creek, which I read and loved, and he hosts an FM radio show called Heavy Metal Sewing Circle. We have a lot of things to talk about, so let's get Nathan on the line. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, first of all, I want to talk about Heavy Metal Sewing Circle, your show. Um, how long have you been doing that and how did it come about in the first place? I've been doing that for just over nine years on xray.fm in Portland. Our call letters are KXRY. It's a community radio station and they actually approached me about a year before they went on the air. And at the time, I was really busy and a little standoffish about having a radio show. I've been a club DJ, uh, you know, in a rock and roll sense for a really long time. And then they asked me again, I think in a December or January before the station launched. And of course, that was the slow time of year. And they got me on the right day. And I said, OK, yeah, I can do that. And so I was one of the very first DJs on X-Ray. And I'm still doing it all these years later and still really having a good time with it. I think it really helps me stay engaged with learning about new music and buying records because I feel like there's a responsibility to always be playing music for my listeners that they haven't heard before. I really like how you draw parallels between classic rock and metal on the show. And um, you recently did that when um, Gary Wright passed away. Most people know him for stuff like Dreamweaver and Love is Alive, but I don't think too many people realize that his songs have been covered by metal artists. So can you talk about that show and some of, you know, how he inspired you and which you chose a lot of really cool songs for that? Obvi so for me, my introduction to Gary Wright besides Dreamweaver was 
Judas Priest covering Spooky Tooth's Better By You, Better Than Me. And I liked that song a lot. And I eventually tracked down the original. And I also had a kind of funny intro to Spooky Tooth via their Ceremony album, which is the one where they made a rock album and then handed it off to this music concrete composer from France named Pierre Henri. And then he just basically ruined the record and their career by putting all this analog synth gloop over the top with no rhyme or reason to it, no melody. It's just, and I loved it because it's such an oddity. It's such an absurd and difficult record. But behind that, uh, there are a lot of great songs. And so over the years, I picked up more Spooky Tooth records and I noticed, oh, wow, Gary Wright was in that band. And then during the pandemic, I picked up a double CD of his first two solo albums, Extract and Footprint, and just got obsessed with it because he's such a great songwriter. And there were a lot of fairly heavy tunes on there. I mean, maybe not as heavy as what he did in Spooky Tooth. But it was just cool to hear a bit more of a guitar-based rock and roll and grit from Gary Wright. And so I played those songs on my show over the years. And then and I read his autobiography, which I think you had picked up not too long ago as well. Uh-huh. And then when he passed, I just went back and looked. And I was like, well, here's all the songs that I've played on my shows over the years. So it kind of, the episode wrote itself in that way. It was like, these are all the heaviest songs because that's, a premise of of the heavy metal sewing circle is I'm not trying to define what's heavy metal and what's not necessarily. I'm trying to make a really inclusive show, but what is important to me is the intent to be heavy. So if there, if you're a blues artist in 1956 and you're putting razor blade slits in your speaker cones in order to get some distortion, you know, that might not be heavy metal, but there is an intent there to be heavy. And that's, what I look for. And I think that, you know, all the songs that I chose for the Gary Wright episode fit that criteria. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes your show not only unique, but educational. Um, now I'm wondering what are some of the other specially themed episodes that you've had, or do you plan on doing some in the future? Oh, sure. I mean, I've used the FM radio as a lure to get a lot of elder statesman artists to come on my show. I've interviewed Rob Halford and Uli Roth from the Scorpions and Mick Box from Uriah Heep. And because a lot of those people are not so excited about whatever digital promotions there are these days, but you say FM radio and they're like, oh, I know what that is. that, (laughs) That FM radio made their careers. And so even if I only get like nine minutes with Rob Halford, I can intersperse music that we talk about into that and, you know, turn it into an episode or half an episode. Um, There's a really special one that I did a year or so back where I talked to three of the gals from Fanny because I love overturning those stones and finding, you know, that there was an all-female hard rock band in like 1970. And uh, I've actually interviewed uh, a number of the women from Bertha since then. And that's probably going to be, well, there's definitely a future article that's coming out in the Maggot Brain magazine next year, but I might chop up some of that for the radio as well. But sometimes a theme episode, just like last week, it was all songs with blood in them because in heavy metal and hard rock, it's not hard to find an <laughs> right. artist or a song with blood in the title. Or sometimes I've done an episode where it's all songs about fire. And those are like something that's easy to put together in a hurry, but still like 
helps me choose songs that I wouldn't necessarily think of. And, and that's so much the point of my show is I feel like for some reason, the music industry has decided that there are these canonical songs like Black Sabbath, Iron Man, Paranoid and War Pigs. But Black Sabbath made 20 some albums and there are so many great songs to play. So my point is I never play Iron Man, Paranoid or War Pigs. I play everything else they ever mm, wrote. Mm-hmm. And especially because so so often those songs that were chosen to that to remember those artists i mean yeah most of the time they are truly great songs but that doesn't mean they're the only great songs that that band made or even their best songs and so many bands made equivalently good songs but had bad management or bad record deals or just were unlucky and didn't get that treatment but it doesn't mean they didn't leave behind a document of their music and so that's what I'm trying to do. It's it's not about finding the most obscure stuff. It's just the best stuff that you're not hearing on corporate radio. Right. And I imagine that you yourself have had some unexpected discoveries while choosing songs or searching for songs with certain things in the title or to a theme, right? Absolutely. I mean, like I, I already owned thousands of records before I did the radio show, but it just keeps pushing me back into digging through crates and finding things that I didn't know about. And I just really enjoy that discovery and doing it for an article and like in a journalistic pursuit is one thing. I mean, I like to do a deep dive on an artist or an album in order to really provide as much information as I can. But that feels like a little bit more like a job, whereas the radio show, I think I have more fun with. I mean, it is work. It, I think I spend about six hours a week putting together a two-hour radio show. Is, uh seems like the average of how it turns out because I do put a lot of care into producing it. And I also tend to do, unless it's like a special interview episode, I usually do a chronological set every week. And the reason I do that is because particularly in heavy metal, the production of a really hard rock album from 1968 is so different from one from 1988 or 2008. And I think just like jumping back and forth, sometimes like the volume and the compression can sort of undermine the heaviness of what a classic rock band was doing. And so by doing it going chronologically, I feel like it's just got more of a flow to it. And there's, there aren't these jarring juxtapositions sonically. Oh, I see. So the recording techniques um, can affect the heaviness of the song. Is that what you're saying? I think that they do in a really, in a way that I don't, I don't want to evaluate the heaviness of a song based on its production that often, if I can help it. But what we find is that the average listener hears louder as better. And that's why so many modern records are compressed and brick walled and mastered to just be all loud all the time. And it's something that sent me back looking for a lot of CDs from the 80s of a lot of my favorite artists, because like the Judas Priest catalog, for instance, like the CDs they made in the 80s sound very much like the records. But the, the remastered reissue CDs from 2002 onward are all compressed so much that if there's an acoustic intro to a song, it's just as loud as the screaming guitar solo in the middle of the song. And if you're at the 
river with your friends listening on a Bluetooth speaker, that can be handy. But if you're if you have a nice pair of headphones or a good home stereo, it really doesn't sound as good to me to lose those dynamics. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I sometimes play songs on this show and will ask the artist for an MP3. And I never really see peaks and valleys in the the visual side of the song. So right. yeah, I guess that's that's all compressed. I mean, I do think in a radio context, that's sort of expected. Radio has always been very compressed. And I even compress the songs that I put on my radio show because radio is just not a format for dynamics. It's just not built that way. And that's not the expectation. And I'm fine with that. It's But when I buy an album and I bring it home, I'd like it to sound as close to the artist's original intention as possible. And that's why I love my Beatles mono box and you know anything that's like original album master series things like that and that's not to say that there haven't been great remasters done and oftentimes uh, some of the new stereo mixes or 5.1 mixes that are coming out can be revelations because the technology has improved but unfortunately i think a lot of these older artists are getting deaf and and the engineer the young engineers have a new style and the average listener doesn't care. They just hear loud is good. And so that's kind of where we're ending up. And it's, it just makes it a lot more of a detective hunt to find the best sounding version of any album. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that you're writing some articles as well. Um, and you have written now writing is, is more of a solitary pursuit. Whereas being in a band, I would think, um, and performing, being in the mix and the spotlight, is they're two totally different things. Um, do you have to be in the mood to do each one or how do you switch gears between those? Well, I think for me, being a drummer has made basically all of my musical pursuits and career a collaborative process because most of the time you don't have just drums by themselves. So I've always enjoyed collaborating with people and playing in a group and I have a lot of experience with it. And, you know, Witch Mountain, which is the main band that I've been in since 97, I mean, 26 year relationship. Granted, mm -hmm. we've had uh, like 13 bass players over those 26 <laughs> years, but regardless, you know, I, I think I understand how to, you know, maintain a relationship and those group dynamics. And I love being in the van and being on tour and being on stage and being around people but I'm not the main songwriter or, you know, providing any melodic support, really. So it's really nice to have another area where I can go work at my own pace and do something that's completely, you know, for myself in a creative way. And that, I mean, I think journalism is a little bit separate from the fiction writing in mm -hmm. that regard, but because I've done the music journalism, I guess, since the 90s, and I've written for, you know, it was Pit Magazine, Metal Edge, and Terrorizer, and, you know, more recently, Decibel, and I was writing articles for Vice's uh, Noisy Music Magazine online, and um, Jack White's Third Man Records has a magazine called Maggot Brain that I've been writing for, and also, as you've seen, a lot of articles for an online site called the Rock and Roll Globe. Yeah. So... 
I've really, and and also I had like a 17 year tenure at the local weeklies in Portland. It was first the Portland Mercury and then Willamette Week. And I've also written stuff for the Oregonian, which is the big paper here. So, I mean, I've seen my byline out there a thousand times because it was just a great way to sort of, you know, I wouldn't, I guess I shouldn't say it's volunteering because it does pay a little bit, but <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if it really pays enough to not call it volunteering. But I loved, especially for the weeklies in Portland for like almost two decades, any really interesting artist that was coming to town, I could preview their show or interview them and make a feature in advance and just really help let people know what was going on because I have my ear to the ground and I'm excited about music when it's in its developing form. I'm not usually the person that notices an artist once they're already in the arena. Like usually I'm seeing these bands playing to five or 15 people in a small club. And then the next time they come through, it's 30 or 50. And then the next time it's a hundred. And, you know, I've always loved kind of putting wind in the sails of artists that I like when they're really starting out. Yeah. That's a great thing to be able to do. Now with your drumming, I'm wondering who were some of the percussionists or drummers that influenced you when you were starting out and do they still um, continue to be an influence? Definitely. I have to start with Ringo, you know, and, and he's such a fabulous drummer and sometimes underrated, but I think anybody who really knows what they're talking about recognizes what he brought to the table. You know, he, he played simply and he played well and he didn't make mistakes and he was really reliable and creative. And that's the type of drummer I've always tried to be. I'm not a jazz fusion player. I don't have an incredible vocabulary, even though I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. I've really not been the guy that goes out in the garage and plays like eight hours a day and like plays along to Neil Peart. Like to me, my drumming is always based on the project that I'm in and whatever is going to help the song the most. And I tend, you know, and particularly in Witch Mountain, where we have a lead guitarist and a lead singer, it's not necessary for me to do anything particularly flashy. But at the same time, being influenced by Black Sabbath and Bill Ward, he has this certain kind of jazz swing and backbeat that I love and I savor. And I really being a skinny 50 year old white guy from the backwoods of Oregon, try to add as much of a pocket to my playing as possible, because I think groove is often a lost art, especially in heavy metal. But I think there are so many examples of really great grooves in metal besides black Sabbath. Uh, I really love the album killers by iron maiden and Clive Burr is so funky and groovy on that record. And also Judas Priest made an album called Sin After Sin with a session drummer named Simon Phillips. And he also does like all this crazy Steely Dan type stuff, like these hi-hat breakdowns. And it's just really, really tasty stuff. But I think the other guy in the very beginning that was huge for me was Phil Calvert from The Birthday Party, which was Nick, Nick Cave's early band. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Phil Calvert is another guy who like nothing he does is complicated or hard to reproduce, but he somehow found just a very simple, creative, tasty solution for every song. And it was always something slightly different. And just that sort of simple creativity really respond. I respond to that. And uh, I've gotten to be Facebook friends with Phil in the last couple of years. And uh, 
He's he's a delight. And I just got to see the Mutiny in Heaven birthday party documentary in the theater a couple of weeks ago. And that was awesome because to me, they're the Beatles of noise. And to me, it, just like a unassailable high benchmark of music as art ever. Well, what's going on with Witch Mountain right now? And what are the plans for the band in the in the years to come and beyond? Sure. So Witch Mountain, last year we celebrated our 25th anniversary shows, which was great. And then earlier this year, we were invited by our Swedish heroes, Candlemass, to do oh. three shows with them in the Northwest. So we were direct support to one of our favorite bands. And one of the reasons we even exist is because of the blueprint Candlemass laid down in the 80s. And so to we had played festivals with them in the past, but to be on club shows with them three nights in a row and really get to spend time and get to know them and hear some really complimentary things that they said about us felt like a very full circle moment for the band. Let's take a little detour here to listen to some Witch Mountain.
That was Nathan on drums with Witch Mountain, and the song is called Burn You Down. And now back to the show. Um, everyone in Witch Mountain at this point has a lot of other things going on in their life. So we're kind of experiencing an ebb right now where we had been, we had had a, a decade of like intense activity from like 2009 to 2019, where we put out four records and a bunch of EPs and did a lot of touring and went to Europe for two different tours and played like every festival. And that was all really rewarding. Uh, but I think we're just naturally slowing down again. And I don't like to fight that kind of energetic current because I recognize that these things are cyclical, but because I'm the guy in the band who is has sort of dedicated my life to music and I don't have children and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon. I joined another band just a couple of months ago called the Keening K E E N I N G. This is Rebecca Vernon from the Salt Lake city band sub Rosa. They were my booking clients and I'm a huge fan of her songwriting. And during the pandemic, she moved to Portland and I helped her co-produce two albums and they went really, really well. And that band is built to tour and everyone in it is kind of a lifer musician. It's a, it's a bit of a Portland super group at this point. And we're all just rallying behind Rebecca because she writes such fantastic music. It's kind of straddles a bunch of different genres. It's dark folk music. It's American Gothic Americana. It's doom metal in places. Like it gets really quiet and harmonic and it also gets really loud and bombastic and heavy. And so we've put a ton of effort into really coming out of the gate as a headlining band because we needed to, you know, like there was an expectation there with the album done and relapse behind it and the personnel that, you know, we needed to at our very first show to come out of the gate as if we had been around for a long time. And so we rehearsed a lot and I think we did really well. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm more familiar with your rock and roll globe writing and that I've been following all the articles that you've done on there for a while now. And they're mostly in-depth re retrospective reviews of older albums. So um, what's, al what's an album that's at least 25 years old that you think holds up the best? <laughs> I think that's the toughest question on there just because, I mean, so much of the music I listen to is at least 25 years old. And when I'm doing my chronological radio sets, I feel like if there's ever a dead space, it's usually like from the mid 90s, like towards the present. I mean, I do play a lot of new music that's coming out but I am, I'm obsessed with older music. I was born in the seventies and I think that's one of the greatest decades for music. Although I'm also very happy to have been, you know, to have lived through the whole eighties so cognizantly. And I think that was also <laughs> a great decade for music. Um, I don't know. I, I mentioned killers earlier by Iron Maiden. I really think that a lot of people who would love that record have never paid any attention to it because that, Eddie zombie monster mascot is on the cover holding mm -hmm. a bloody ax. And it kind of gives you the idea that it's something much more extreme than it is. Whereas really, I think it's just one of the best rock and roll records ever made. It's just like every song on it is perfectly written and executed. The band has this ferocious energy, but 
it's I mean, it's heavy metal simply because there's screaming guitars in it and there's some, you know, almost deep purple type falsetto here and there. But it, there's no double bass. It's not like the guitars are that distorted. It's a really melodic record. And to me, like outside of genres, I just think it's it's one of the best rock records ever. But but stepping away from hard rock and heavy metal, if I think about the album I've probably listened to the most since high school, it's Tones on Tail Pop. It, that's the guys um, who left Bauhaus to form Love and Rockets. But okay. before Love and Rockets, they made one album and an album's worth of singles under the name Tones on Tail. And it is some of the most beautiful, listenable music I've ever heard. And I think barely a week goes by that I don't put that on because it's just one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And a few years ago, they did a reunion called, under the name Pop Tone. They didn't call it Tones on Tail because they wanted to also be able to play Love and Rocket songs and Bauhaus songs. But um, Pop Tone came through three times within a year and I soaked it up and savored it because it was music I never expected to see performed live. And that was really a treat. Hmm. No, I've never heard of that album. I'll have to check it out. It's so good. So you mentioned Iron Maiden's most well-known songs and uh, Black Sabbath's most well-known songs. But I want to go back to maybe a very early sort of prehistoric doom metal. (laughs) Can you name me a song or an album that you think kind of is the springboard for that subgenre? I don't really think it particularly existed before the first Black Sabbath record. I mean, there are heavy songs Certainly like Helter Skelter by the Beatles is heavy metal, in my opinion. And that's 1968. And a lot of people cite Blue Cheer um, for helping develop that genre. And there are some obscure bands that, you know, would have one song here or there. But you just don't get a full album of Doom until the debut album of Black Sabbath that came out on Friday the 13th of February in 1970. And to me, that's the birth of that genre but you also don't have that song black sabbath without gustav holst's mars bringer of war and that's that's really where they got the idea to do something that heavy was listening to holst's planets interesting um well as i mentioned earlier in the intro um i have read your novel star creek And yeah, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm wondering what's coming up in your writing life aside from your usual nonfiction and music writing. Sure. Well, along with Star Creek, I've published maybe 20 short stories in different anthologies and magazines over the last 10 years or so. I mean, I if I wasn't doing all this music stuff, I think I would be much more prolific as a writer. Fiction is something I've been interested in since I was, you know, since I could read or Mm -hmm. even when I was being read to before that. But I waited a long time to really get serious about it. When I was 19 or so, I I wrote a lot of bad horror stories in high school uh, with the intention to get better. And I was reading this book called Creating Short Fiction by science fiction author and editor named Damon Knight. And in it, he says, if you're under 30, you should go out and get some life experience before you become a writer. And I took that to heart and I went out for 20 more years and traveled a lot and had, you know, many careers and lives and relationships. 
And by the time I was 40, I was like, you know, I actually have opinions on most things now. And I feel like I've got some experience in the world and now's the time to write. And I'd learned so much about how to not be a hobbyist in music. And so many of those lessons apply almost directly towards being a fiction author. And so I just put my mind to it. I put my ass in the seat and sat down to write. And I also have really been busy on the convention circuit. I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association. I'm a, a mentor in their mentor program. And just going out there and meeting people and supporting other writers and meeting editors at conventions and just kind of like being out there has been invaluable for me. I I think the biggest struggle I have is simply making the time to write. I really have to kind of squeeze it in the nooks and crannies of my schedule here and there, which is why, you know, I get a couple of stories out each year. I was just at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival this weekend, reading a new unpublished story there. I have a novel in progress that is set in the same universe as Star Creek, but it takes place 76 years later. So it's more of a future post-secessionist Northwest territory. Um, and I would love to get that done, but I have a lot of other projects on my plate. But the goal is to finish the novel, at which point I also have a full collection's worth of stories that could be compiled into a book as well. And I have a few agents that I've talked to that are interested, but they want that novel done. So that's right, what's, right. that's yeah. my, until the novel is done, I have, you know, my prospects are that I need to get that done. Well, I think a short story collection would be great in the meantime. I am definitely thinking about that. And I have a half a dozen small presses that have like reached out to me wanting that collection, but I'm almost thinking about self-publishing like a real offset hardcover, maybe just like 500 hand-numbered copies of something just to not compromise in any way, just to make, I like to make a really beautiful book that I could sell to my friends and fans. And then, you know, the print on demand version can come after that, but yeah, we'll see. It's a great it's all, idea. But yes, I, I have enough material now to make a book. And so I, I do want to do that. That's coming up. Well, when you're writing uh, about bands, I imagine you listen to a lot of their music while you're doing that. But what about when you're writing fiction? Do you like to have music on or do you like prefer quiet? I seemed it's funny when I was in high school writing, I could listen to punk music uh, while I was writing. And that was inspiring to me. But these days I need total silence. And then the alter the one alternative I found is there are these like 12 hour thunder and rainstorm videos on YouTube. And I think because I grew up in Oregon and that's just such a natural sound to me, if I'm at a coffee shop and I'm forced to work on a writing project in a public space, if I put on my earphones and have the rainstorm going, that's a great mood for me for writing, but otherwise silence is my preference. That's a good pro tip. I hadn't thought of that. It works really, Storms. really I like well. It. That's great. I mean, you know, figure out what is the ambient sound that works for you. But for mm -hmm. me, that's just a very calming, but moody and evocative uh, kind of soundscape to be immersed in. Well, since you uh, are so immersed also in what's going on now with music and writing, you're a member of the Horror Writers Association. So can you name one album and one book that came out in the last year that you recommend to others? 
again, this is totally stepping outside of heavy metal, but the record I'm really obsessed with and excited about right now, and it's uh, three women from Brooklyn that they call their band Say She She, mm-hmm. S-A-Y-S-H-E-S-H-E. They're very much obsessed with Nile Rodgers and kind of like disco girl group 70s and 80s soul music. It is a really great collection of songs. And I saw them live at Pickathon over the summer, two different sets, and was so enamored with their performance and their backing band. And then they just came to Portland last week and we went and saw them again and they were just as good, if not better. But what's maybe even more impressive is that this album was recorded live to tape. And Mm. there's just no current bands making pop music that do that. Like everyone is in the studio crafting things piece by piece, but this band is so good. And these three women harmonize together so well that they can just go in the studio and record it live the way bands did in the fifties. And I think that's really something special that's been really lost, especially with such accessible, you know, kind of pop music. As far as new books, boy, I think I spend so much time reading older stuff i'm often well i think honestly one of the things that's coming out constantly in the modern age that i love is a comic series out of seattle called meg and mog m-e-g-g-m-o-g-g simon hanselman writes and draws these really purposefully offensive comics and it's about this witch and her her black cat boyfriend and their owl buddy and their wolf buddy. And they're basically just burnouts that sit in front of the TV, smoking bong hits and doing as much drugs and being as depraved as possible. And it's just this series of graphic novels that keeps coming out and keeps coming out. And there was, he switched to um, using Instagram to put out new material over the pandemic. And they just collected all those into a new, collection called crisis zone and i don't know it's just hilarious like i'm not allowed to read it in bed anymore because i keep my girlfriend awake because i'm like laughing Uh, okay oh that's a great (laughs) recommendation yeah the time has come nathan for my standard closing question okay what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare (laughs) i think the one of the best and worst days of my life was when i put on a showcase of artists I represent and my booking agency at South by Southwest in 2011. I had seven bands all converge uh, at the same time. And I was driving the van that had the backline equipment for everyone. And our rental van broke down in rush hour traffic in Austin, about four blocks from the venue. And we had to load that trailer of equipment by hand, four blocks while the van and trailer were being put onto a tow truck that was big enough to take the entire rig. And our sound man who we had hired to do the event had gotten stuck, had missed his flight and gotten stuck at the airport in Denver. So these poorer sound guys in Austin that had already been working all day had to basically pull a double shift and work into the night. Also my own band, Witch Mountain had to perform And I also was the agent for every single band there. So every need or request would kind of come to me. 
And there was a one point where I was standing there just like looking into the distance thinking, what if I just ran like that way and just <laughs> never stopped, just ran and ran. But honestly, it all went really well. The show was great. All the bands played really well. Um, in fact, they say that nobody gets signed at South by Southwest. But at that point in time, Witch Mountain was seen by Chris Bruni, who owns Profound Lore Records, and we signed up with him shortly thereafter. So we literally got our record deal uh, from that show. But at the end of the night, because that van was in the shop overnight, um, we had booked rooms for my headlining clients, Agaloc, about an hour east of Austin because we had to get to New Orleans the next day and, you know, getting a hotel in Austin during South by is nearly impossible. But now we have no van and I have to get like six people an hour east and we flagged down a taxi and apparently there's a law in Austin that you can only put four people in a taxi at once. And oh. I just had to use the force on this cab driver. I was just like pushing people into the van and saying, you are going to take these people an hour away from here. You're going to get a big tip. You know, they're all going to crouch down like refugees and like <laughs> hide so that no one can see them. Go now, go now, go now. And like sent them on their way. And then at finally at three in the morning, I ended up three to a bed in somebody's hotel room with another band. And then we had to get up at like four hours later and pick up the van and go back to the venue where all our gear had been left out in this courtyard overnight because there was nowhere for it to go and, you know, load the van and start driving East to pick up the band. We, you know, finally got to the hotel, got the band and their driver in. And I was like, great. I have barely slept in two days, but now we have the driver and I laid in the passenger seat to fall asleep. And the driver takes us to like 75 miles an hour on the freeway. And an, turns out he's never driven with a trailer before and the trailer starts rocking like i felt so close to death at that moment like this like oh this van is going to roll over and we're all going to die and the driver's going what do i do what do i do what do i do <sighs> i'm like the brakes daniel put your foot on the brakes and he slowed down and then we switched and i got back in the driver's seat and drove us for a few more hours until things cooled down so i think that's that's my rock and roll nightmare, but we survived it and everyone's doing great. Well, that sounds like one for the memoirs. If you ever write your, <laughs> uh, your autobiography. I plan to, I have a lot of funny stories like that. And you saw, you know, my Moss story slam and mm -hmm. I, I definitely want to compile a lot of these anecdotes because I feel like I've seen and experienced a lot of really entertaining things in my life. And I like to share them. You have. And, uh, before we say goodbye, can you share uh, the best place for fans to follow you online? Uh, Instagram is good right now because that's where you can find my link tree, which kind of goes to everything else. Mm -hmm. But um, Nanotier, if you look for Nanotier, N-A-N-O-T-E-A-R, that's one billionth of a tier. That's my booking agency, but it's also the handle that I use on most different social media. So if you look up Nanotier, you're either going to find eye drops or me okay well thanks i thought it was nano tear so i'm glad that i've been educated on that it's a daily mantra that things go wrong in rock and roll but it's not life or death so you cry one billionth of a tear and then you move on i love it <laughs> well thanks nathan thank you so much stacy
This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Well, she's by-